In your Bibles, to the book of Hebrews, I'll be reading Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God in the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, instructive, life-giving word. Father, help me unfold this text. Help us think through it. Help us feel appropriate sobriety. Help us love it. Oh, and for those of us who are yours, cause our assurance of this great hope in our salvation and your work in our lives to grow and be strong to the glory of Jesus. Amen and amen. All right, what we have before us here is, I don't have to tell you, but I'm telling you anyway, a very serious passage because this text it comes to all of us church-going people as a warning. Now, as we have seen, the, over, the overarching goal of the Hebrew writer in this book is to deepen and to strengthen the joy of our assurance of salvation in Jesus. And one of the ways the writer does that is by exposing false assurances. So here in verses 4 to 8 of Hebrews 6, that's what's happening. The paragraph says, there is a spiritual condition that makes repentance and thus salvation impossible. Right, let's, let's remember the larger context. We saw in verse 1 of chapter 6 last week, his point is this, let us go on to maturity, not staying dull of hearing, grow up, bear fruit. And then in verse 3, he said, we will do this if God 
permits. And then the next word is for. He's unfolding. Why would you say that? Because he's going to say, there are some professors of Christ for whom God will not permit it. So, whether we have the grace to overcome our natural inclinations and rebelling in unbelief, it ultimately depends on God. Verse 4 begins with the word for. In other words, here's the reason you don't want to not go on to maturity. This is why you want to persevere and grow and bear fruit. Because the alternative would be to find out I'm a churchgoer who reaches the place where it's impossible for me to repent and be saved. You don't want to be one of those self-deceived persons. Don't take God for granted. This we will do if He permits. And so what we have here is a, a loving exhortation to the readers to flee if you are showing signs of dullness of hearing and a lack of maturity. It's love. Flee. Verses 4 and 5 is the experience of the kind of person that he's referring to. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance. It's just his main thing. Who? Those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. So, one thing that's clear is that these are church members who experience such things but eventually fall away from all of it. They turn back from these amazing realities of God's powerful grace and they turn back to the types and the shadows of their former Judaism or to the world. And the effect of doing so is verse 6. They are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now, what I think he means by that is that when a person who has had the extraordinary blessings of God in the context of church life, church family life, 
the Word of God. But down the road, that person finally makes it clear, I choose to go back to Judaism. I choose to go back to the world. And thus they turn away from Christ. He says, in effect, by doing so, Jesus, he isn't worth more than my cultural Judaism. He's not worth more than what my friendship with the world offers. And when a person says that, by how they live and what they do and what they say, they are saying, ultimately, I agree with those who crucified Jesus. And what could bring more shame on Christ today or throughout the ages than to have someone experience and taste the goodness and the wisdom and the power of Christ in the church community, and then to come out of the closet and say, no, there is something better and more to be desired than Jesus and the gospel. That holds Christ up to contempt. Literally, the way he writes it in the Greek is exposing Jesus to open shame and public disgrace. Because it's, it's one thing for an outsider of Christianity to reject Christ. But it's another thing for a person who, who has been in church and has been, quote, enlightened. Who, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God being preached and the powers of the age to come. And then to say, through, in the immediate context, their reversion back to Judaism and cultural acceptance or through their reversion back to a lifestyle in love with the world to say that Jesus stuff was hogwash. The world is better. My prideful religion is better in the types and the shadows of comfort. That's a re-crucifying of Jesus and putting him to public shame to an extent that an outsider of the Christian community can't do that. And this falling away, this re-crucifying of Jesus, it leads to the conclusion it is impossible to restore such a person, again, to repentance. Now, flip over to chapter 12 for a second, because he's going to illustrate this in chapter 12, verses 16 to 17. 
see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for or because he found no place to repent, though he sought it with tears. For don't ever make the mistake of thinking that Esau genuinely repented, but God rejected him. So let me say this clearly right now. God will never reject genuine repentance and faith. The text says that Esau found within himself no, literally the word is place. There's nothing in him of true repentance. He, in other words, could not. Repent. He wanted the stuff. He felt miserable of having given up all of that inheritance. He, re he felt regret, but he had no humbled faith producing actual repentance. This is an illustration, I think, of what the writer means when he says, it is impossible to restore again to repentance. That kind of person. All right, so that's the basic reading of verses 4 to 6. So now, for the rest of the time, here's the question this morning Who are these people? This passage is one of the most controversial passages in the Bible within the church world for centuries on end. Now, as far as I can tell, there are four major interpretive solutions to the problem here. In other words, what does the text mean? Who are these people for which it is now impossible for them to come to repentance. And so what I'm going to do is lay out those four and let you know that the position I hold is the fourth one, the last one. As I lay out those first three, I also will give a little critique. But next week, I'm waiting till next week to more fully and exegetically go through the passage to show you why I think the fourth one is the correct one. Okay, so the first view says essentially this. This passage refers to genuine, real believers who are actually saved. They have actually been justified by God. And then they fall away from that and lose the salvation that they once had. Okay, so th this view 
denies the doctrine of eternal security of the believer and the perseverance of the saints. See, those who hold it essentially are saying this. Look, Jesus died, the gospel comes, and now salvation is left up to you. And so, if you're a Christian, it, it is your autonomous will that got you saved. And therefore, your autonomous will down the road can get you unsaved. That's the position. And let me just put this large parenthesis in for a moment. My opinion, the biblical doctrine of eternal security, it teaches that God in Christ saves you. And if He actually saves you, then He keeps you. In that sense, you cannot lose your salvation. He sees to it that all genuine Christians who have been born again, therefore, they all will persevere in faith to the end unto eternal salvation. A clear reading of the Bible, it draws a distinction between a person's decision to receive Christ. Come, yes, I come to you. The Bible's clear. There's a distinction between that happening in a sinner and God actually saving a person by bringing them to saving faith from which then they do make a decision. In other words, People can make decisions to say the sinner's prayer apart from the saving grace of God in regeneration. Happens all the time. Spiritually dead people can do all sorts of religious functions. They can get baptized. They can go to church week in and week out. They can take communion. They can say the sinner's prayer. They can get emotionally worked up to the point where they say, no, I'll join. I don't want to go to hell. All of those things can be done apart from God's regenerating power that is necessary in order to bring somebody from spiritual death to spiritual life in Christ. And so the question is when a person makes a decision for Christ, did that decision come because God supernaturally raised him or her from the dead to new life in Christ? Or did it come as a result of human psychological pressure or mere religious works? God knows the answer to that question of every single one of our souls. 
for us mere finite mortals? Time will usually tell. Remember, Jesus is teaching essentially on this in the parable of the four soils where the word of God is preached. The seeds are planted, right? And the seeds fall on the stony ground and then seeds fall among the thorns. And both of those persons, according to Jesus, looked like Christians. They looked good for a while. But in the end, they did not bear fruit for eternal life. So according to Jesus, there's such a thing as false faith. A false believer seems to be saved for a while in that parable, but later reveals his true condition and falls away. But there, but there have always been those now in the church world, fellow Christians who teach, who say, and they do today, that salvation ultimately depends on man's will to be saved. And thus, they can lose their salvation because that too ultimately depends on their autonomous will. And so these people turn to our text and use it as proof positive. See? Serious sin, leading one to fall away, results in the loss of the salvation that the person actually had. And so they say, verses 4 to 6 here, describe a genuine, a true, an actually born-again person, a believer, who then loses their salvation. All right, that's the first view. The second view is a teaching that, that really became widespread in the American church over the last hundred and so years, which says that genuine Christians can even ultimately deny the faith, and yet they remain saved because they at one time made a profession of faith in Christ. You can call this the decisional view of salvation where there are those who reduce becoming a Christian, they reduce it down to saving faith is a mental agreement with the basic gospel of Jesus. It's, an, it's a mental assent, and it does not necessarily involve repentance at all. That would be stage two, Christianity. In other words, it boils down to this. Once a person professes faith in Christ, or the way we like to say it, uh, ask Jesus to come into their heart. That person 
is now eternally secure no matter what subsequently happens in their life, in their thinking, in their believing, in their living. Nothing to do with salvation. And so many of them, therefore, may never come to repentance. Or they showed a repentance and then went back to other Christ-denying lifestyles and never come to repentance. Doesn't matter. They're still going to be saved. It only means they're going to lose rewards in heaven. This is view number two. The, pro- the, the problem with it, you know, it to me, it's just blatantly unbiblical. The, the Bible is clear that a true believer, yes, we're all going to sin. We're not free from sinning, but we're different. And not only that, a true believer may sin horrifically, like David, like Peter. I do not know him, and be restored. That's Bible. But the Bible is also clear that some profess to believe, and yet... They are not truly saved. This is how Jesus' close friend put it in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if you've asked Jesus into your heart. Here it is. If we keep His commandments... Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So a person who falls away and crucifies again the Son of God and putting him to open shame who, that person who thus, according to this text, cannot be restored to repentance is not an actual saved believer who loses his rewards, but is a person who has not been and will not be saved. Thirdly, you having fun yet? Thirdly, here's the third view. It's called the hypothetical view, which teaches that the writer is speaking about something that actually cannot happen to anybody. In other words, they hold that it's referring to born-again people, justified people who are actually justified. And therefore, this is hypothetical, can't happen. Let me just give you a taste. So so I became a Christian in the beginning of the 1980s. And from the 70s and throughout the 80s, one of the major influential study Bibles in America was called the Ryrie Study Bible. In, In the notes in the Ryrie Study Bible, here's a quote. 
To fall away is impossible. And then the parenthesis, since according to this view, true believers are eternally secure. So we believe in eternal security. Therefore, this falling away that he talks about is actually impossible to happen. But the phrase is placed in the sentence in order to strengthen the warning. That's why it's there. This view holds that those who are described, enlightened, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God, they're all true believers, but in reality, none of them will ever fall away because true believers cannot fall away. It's just hypothetical. It can't really happen. But it's strange that in the Ryrie study, Bible says, oh, but the writer put it there in order to strengthen the warning. But if you tell me that can't happen, how does that strengthen the warning? It seems to do the exact opposite. It makes it no warning at all for the readers. And trust me, that has been preached to millions of American evangelicals who live by that. Doesn't matter what I do, what I believe, how I think. And when they read this, you wonder, why is there no sobriety? Why is there no godly fear that rises up to obey Paul and work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Because the warning has been denuded. It's only hype. But this warning, I contend, is real. There are those who will experience having been enlightened and tasting of the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and of the powers of the age to come and then fall away and crucify again Jesus and put him to open shame. See, if there's a threat, don't fall off the cliff to your death. But then someone builds a 100-foot glass smooth wall all around the cliff. You don't need to warn the person, therefore, not to fall because it's impossible to fall off the edge of the cliff. No, no, no. The fourth view, and I'm going to try to show next week, or slowly, through the exegesis of the text, and then theologically through the scripture, that this threat is real to professing Christians like me. I profess Christ as my Savior. This apostasy 
which apostasy means falling away, is possible for professing Christians. These are people who have been in the midst of the blessings of church life. But then over time, at some point, their true colors shine through. They repudiate the faith and go back to Judaism or to the world. And they end up siding with those who crucified the Son of God. And in so doing, they put Him to open shame by their lives and their words, which essentially communicate I tried faith in Christ. I was a Christian. I was a born again. But it doesn't work. Really, it was, a, it was all a sham. This Christ dying for sins and changing lives and that God raised Him from the dead. No. I was on the inside. I should know. I experienced much church life. I was a pastor. For such people, the writer says, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. They will be condemned justly for their sin. Because true repentance and faith in Christ is not found within them. So we'll come back there next week. Let me just close by saying, if the warning of this text doesn't make us serious and vigilant to pursue Jesus, to pursue real joy in Him, then will anything cause us to be vigilant? Believers are meant to come to a place of rest, of their deep assurance of Him saving me. Thus, look at that. I see that that's real fruit. I'm, I'm genuine. And thus, as you read this text, you know, that's not me. I'm not one of those. Because your love for Christ and the sobriety of what it... Ooh, that would be horrific, is what drives your life down here. This short, long life. So you take it seriously. But so now here's the question as I close. Look, okay, Joe, if that's right, if we have a, a deep assurance, I have a deep assurance of my salvation today, then, then wait a minute, why should we take these warnings against falling away so seriously? The answer is simple. Because 
God's way to keep us from falling is by enticing us with his promises and sobering us with his warnings. And so, let us be those who hear the warnings so that we are thus again and again and again resolved to fear unbelief rising up within us, to fear love for the world rising up within us and thus causes us again and again to cling to Jesus and the, the all-surpassing desirability of fellowship with Him by the Spirit and the promises and the inheritance that is laid up for you in heaven. Let's pray. Oh, Father, may you guide each and every one of us Cling to your Son by the power of your grace to feel in an appropriate manner warnings toward us that they produce deep clinging joy and resoluteness walk with your Son more fully today than yesterday. We thank you for that command to strive to enter the rest. For today, when we hear your voice in the Word, we are not to harden our hearts as in the rebellion, but to rest in Christ, our Savior, and to know that we are those that the writer will go on to say. But concerning you, no, no, no. I have much better assurance about you. We thank you, Father. Glorify your Son in the rest of our time here as we sing. To the glory of his name. Amen.